0: I didn't get the job, and I had a brother, a priest, out in the Midwest, meant nothing to them. The nuns were able to see through me, maybe.
1: This is Pete's NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York, many of whom we have come to know through a place called the New York Irish Center in Queens. For this episode, our centerpiece is Peggy Cooney from County Mead. Who came to New York in 1960 and lives in Astoria in Queens? (laughs) How are you, Peggy? It is chilly. Long time no see. How are you? winter for sure now, anyway. Okay. Right. How long are you here now, Peggy? <laughs> Since 1977. Since 1977? Wow.
0: It's too big now, I wish I wasn't
1: here. You'd have to downsize. However you slice or dice it, or splice it, as the case may be, our lives consist of many different chapters. Some overlap in time and share characters and happenings from the pages of each, but each chapter is, in and of itself, a short story, sealed in its own unique world. And for those blessed with longevity, new chapters keep getting tacked onto the binding of their book of memories, one after the other. At ninety years of age, a fact she is not shy about, Peggy Cooney's book has many chapters, with no doubt more and more to come. It is not possible to capture the fullness of anyone's life in a short few minutes, let alone one with such a span, but you'll get a taste here for the richness of Peggy's. you learn of the people she came from her mother's strong will, the inevitable scattering of her siblings, and her life caring for the children of affluent others, mainstay work for the many women in the rich history of the migrant Irish. you learn, too, of her non-negotiable Irish nationalism, an identity which has stood for centuries as a bulwark for the Irish in the face of cultural annihilation, and for Peggy's own identity in the story of her family. But we begin with a chapter from a non nigerian life that did not take place in New York, or in the States at all, or even Ireland, but on a stepping stone that has served many Irish who have taken a winding road to America.
0: I went to England. Before I ever came here, I went to England. My mother had been a nurse in England her whole life. And she came home, and married my father. My mother decided for me that I was going to go to England and be a nurse. And in those days, you listened to your mother. So I left the National School in Shoebe. I was in the Mercy Convent in Shoebe and lived with my grandparents. And I went to the technical school, as they called it then. And that's where I learned my Irish. That's where I learned to cook and sew and knit and grow flowers and, you know, all the stuff they taught you. So it was time to leave there then. <laughs> and I went. I don't know what I was going to do, but my mother decided for me that I would go over to my aunt Maggie in Coventry, my father's sister, who worked in the bank in Coventry City. I was 17 and the war had just ended. My aunt Maggie had been there for years and years and years and years and years. I didn't want to, but I went to Coventry and I met my aunt Maggie. I'd never seen her before. Coventry was the most bombed city in England. It was leveled. There was no hospital. There was no anything in it. The Coventry and Warwickshire Hospital, where it had been, they had put up all these wooden huts. They called them Nissan Huts, N-I-S-S-A-N. England was full of them after the war. So they made wards out of them. That was the hospital. There was no nurses' home because it had been bombed too, and some lord and lady, somebody in Warwickshire, had given them a big old mansion. It was probably maybe 10 miles out of the city, what had been the city. So we went by bus every day back and forth from the nurse's home to the hospital. Before the war, they made everything in Coventry. They started making bicycles. They made great bikes. I remember buying a bicycle. I was so thrilled with myself that I had enough money to buy a bicycle. There were Irish girls there, but not many. Welsh girls and Scottish girls and girls from Burma and girls from the Philippines, you know, and all that. My best friend actually was a girl from Burma. She was lovely. Her and I got to be best friends. I spent a lot of time on night duty. And I was very happy when I was there doing what I was doing. And I saw all kinds of things. And there would be emergency, you know, surgeries at night, people getting their legs cut off. I saw terrible motorcycle accidents. I saw a baby being born. You know, it was very higgledy-piggledy after the war. And for some reason, I got a lot of night nursing and a lot of time on the children's ward. Sick children. Now, sick children were very sad. I was very unhappy in Coventry. I loved the nursing, but I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to stay there. I didn't apply myself as they say. I didn't study for the exams. There wasn't animosity in Coventry towards the Irish. We were all actually all the same. For an English hospital, there were very few Irish in it, actually. No, I was just unhappy because I didn't want to be anywhere else but in Ireland. I went home on vacation got back right into, you know, going to Croke Park with my father, going out on the bike with my father when he was out doing his duty, as he called it. My brother and sister were at home. They were younger than me. My other brother was down in Tipperary. He was raised down in Tipperary, my father's family. But my mother said, no, you're going back. And he went back. Then I failed the exam. I just kept failing everything, and I was happy. And finally, I said, no, this is it. I can't do this. I remember taking the bicycle home. I took it on the train up to Hollyhead and took it on the ferry over and took it on the bus down (laughs) to Tunchaka. That bike was there forever, ever and ever and ever.
1: With the career in nursing in England that her mother had mandated now fallen by the wayside, Peggy was at a loose end career-wise. Before long she was on her way to the border town of Dundalk. For the uninitiated among our global audience, yes, the small island of Ireland is divided since 1921 by a border. On the one side of the line is the Irish Republic, on the other, Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom. But more about that later.
0: The curate in the parish was a very nice man from Galway. He had friend in Dundalk, a doctor. So he took me up to Dundalk on a scout for an interview. The has owned the whole town of Dundalk, this one family actually. And I took the job. And he had four children. His surgery was in the house. It had a great big three-story house in Dundalk. So I did a little bit of everything. You know, the kids were all at school. They were older kids. They weren't babies. And I stayed in it for eight years. And that was the last job I had before I came here. And I loved it. Great time in Dundalk.
1: Even for someone who never wanted to be more than a bicycle ride from the village where she was raised. For that young girl with the fortitude to resist a life in England, the lure of an adventure in America proved irresistible.
0: While I was in McGuinness, I saw the ad and I saw it was just for one year. I wasn't going to say I was going forever. An agency is set up in Dublin and they advertise in the Independent and the press and the Evening Herald. And I saw the ad in the Evening Herald and I thought, if they answer that, they give you three families. I say, where do you want to go? And I remember my brother who was out in, in Missouri saying to me, go to New
1: York, it's the closest to home. For an Irish person living abroad, the word home does not just mean Ireland. It is code for my place of true belonging. Keep an ear out for it throughout Peggy's stories.
0: My mother sneered at me and said, huh, you wouldn't stay in England, you're not going to stay in New York.
1: With typical Peggy Cooney irony, she chose a tumultuous day to make the trip of her life.
0: I flew through Hurricane Donna on the 13th of September 1960. It devastated Florida. It was a very, very rough trip. We left Dublin, beautiful day, Aer Lingus. I was beautifully dressed. I had a very heavy Irish tweed suit. I had nylons. I had a, a jumper that my mother had knit for me, and I was way overdressed. We started out, everything was great. 17 hours later, I landed in New York. Somewhere over the Atlantic, they announced that there was a hurricane hitting the east coast of America. And we were going to have trouble.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, from the cockpit again where we're asking our flight attendants, please, to take their seats uh, as soon as they can as we're maneuvering around some uh, build-ups and uh, possible uh, storms. Uh, So, flight attendants, as soon as you can, please take seats. It
0: got very, very rough. Oh, very, very rough the crew of the plane sat down. They buckled themselves in. Then it got worse, and it got worse. And in those days, the planes always landed in Gander, in Newfoundland, to refuel. So they announced, we cannot make it to Gander. We're going to Goose Bay in Labrador, to an Air Force station, US Air Force station. And we're out of water. You couldn't go to the bathroom. You couldn't stand up. Terrible! I don't know how many hours it was to Goose Bay and the plane landed. I was just dying from the heat. I had never been in such heat in my life. The crew got up and they opened the doors and I could see the wind blown, and the rain was banging against the plane. The Air Force guys, they came out and they were carrying these tanks of water across the runway to the plane. And the wind was blowing them back, blowing them back, like something you see on television. I got up and I went down to the door. Those days the crew were very nice, weren't like the ones that are on it now. They said, where are you going? Sit down, sit down, where are you going? They thought I wanted to get off the plane. I said, just air, can I just stand here and let the air come in the door? I remember it so clearly. So they said yes. So we were there for hours and they gave us a meal and they gave us the water. I don't remember who or what kind of person was in the seat beside me, but in the seat in front, they were either cardinals or bishops. They had the red thing on and the purple thing on. And they hee-hawed and laughed, although they didn't seem to be concerned. I thought these people should be up saying prayers or something. <laughs> and then they said, well, we're not going to be able to land in New York. We're probably going to try and make Toronto. So we kept going. And then after another while, they announced, well, no, we can't land in Toronto. It's now going by Canada. Donna. I'll never forget Donna. We'll try Boston. And I'm thinking of the people now. I've been sponsored over by a family to take care of their kids. They'll surely know about this. I'm thinking, are they at Kennedy Airport waiting for me? Then they announced, after another while, we are being allowed to land in New York.
1: And with the smell of the Irish countryside still lodged in the tiny spaces between the fibres of her tweeds, she meets her first employers in America, the Hoffmans of Riverdale.
0: The couple were there to meet me and they laughed and they said, oh boy, you blazed a new trail to America. Nobody has ever done that before.
1: And did New York meet her expectations?
0: From the minute I landed, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I didn't expect to. Very nice people. They lived in Riverdale. They had two little boys. Beautiful place. I had a contract to stay with them for a year. He was a Wall Street broker and she was a model. A showroom model, very beautiful woman.
1: And in those early days in Riverdale, Peggy meets someone from her sisterhood of Irish nannies who becomes a friend for life.
0: They gave us phone numbers, you know, so we could call the people that were here before us. The second week I was here, I was getting a day off. And I thought, oh, I don't need a day off to myself. What am I going to do with a day off? Where am I going to? So I took out the list of names and I showed it to Mrs Hoffman. And she said, well, there's only one name here, she said, that's in Manhattan. They were in New Jersey and they were in Connecticut and Long Island, the other girls. Or up in the suburb, you know, Westchester, someplace I couldn't get to, in other words. So she gave me the New York one, Nula. Nula was her name. So I called. So Nula gets on with a sing-song cork accent. I thought I was back. She had been here almost a year. So we arranged to meet the next day. Mrs. Hoffman put me on the subway, the A train. Mm. So I got off at 96th and Central Park West, where Nuala was. And I met her. And we've been friends ever, ever since. So Nuala and I, of course, started doing the town. We spent every Sunday in Gaelic Park. Went to all the dances, then the Mayo dance, the Cork dance, all of those things. And we had a, we had a really, really, really good time. She 80-something. Now, she moved back to Cork years, years ago. We talk on the phone all the time. And I loved Riverdale because I could walk to Gaelic Park on a Sunday. I had Sunday off and I'd walk down the hill down to Gaelic Park. A lot of the girls that came out at that time, the Irish girls, didn't stay a year. I mean, they got horrible jobs, horrible people. I mean, I was friendly with a lot of them from every county in Ireland. But I was very lucky, very, very lucky. So I stayed almost three years. Then I moved out. Never saw them again. Never knew what happened to them. Lost track with them altogether. But oh, I remember them fondly. They really were very nice people.
1: Riverdale couldn't last forever. So Peggy once again had to head out looking for work. This time, though, she was in New York. And for the first time, the world of work began to operate on her terms.
0: What am I going to do now, sort of thing. So through contacts and stuff like that, first place I was was to the Foundling Hospital the famous foundling hospital. The mercy nuns were there. I thought that would be nice. I would like to do that. And I didn't get the job. And I had a brother, a priest, out in the Midwest. Meant nothing to them. The nuns were able to see through me, maybe. Then somebody threw other grapevines and stuff like that. Register at a babysitting agency. Manhattan was full of them. And I picked this one, part-time childcare, it was called. This was Miss MacDonald, an English woman. She was terribly proper. So Miss MacDonald and I hit it off. She said, you'd do better if you did pediatric nursing, is taking newborns out of the hospital to the home, the rich people who would do this. And it could be for three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months, whatever. Whatever. And it paid better than the babysitting, too. And the babysitting, you'd always be going from one place to another. Anyway, I took her advice, and that's what I did. I got great jobs. I worked in Connecticut, Long Island, and all over Manhattan, of course.
1: Time now to backtrack to an earlier part of the 20th century, to learn a little about Peggy's people.
0: My mother's father was a head constable in the RIC, and all of his brothers were in the RIC.
1: The RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, was the name given to the police force in Ireland while it was entirely ruled by Britain. Most of its members were Irish, for whom it was a good, steady job. But during the Irish War of Independence, from 1919 to 1921, the RIC found itself on the front lines defending the interests of the British Crown against their fellow Irishmen.
0: My mother was born in Ballinasloe, 30 Galway. My father was from kind of Tipperary, came from a very large family. It was a double family. He was in the second family.
1: Just to jump in and clarify here, double families in Ireland, at least in those days, tended to occur in succession, not in parallel.
0: The Coonies were farmers in Tipperary. Pretty substantial farm, wasn't it? Small farm. My father was a guard. He had joined the police, him and his brother from Tipperary, in 1922 when the Guards were formed, when the Free State was formed.
1: The Free State was the name given to the part of Ireland that separated from Britain, a precursor to the Irish Republic, and the Guards was the name given to its newly formed police force.
0: And Daddy and my Uncle Charlie went up to Dublin and they joined the Guards. My mother was a nurse in London. She came home on vacation and they met somewhere down along the line and they got married. After my father got out of the depot in the Phoenix Park, he was sent to Oldcastle County Meath. In those days, the rule in the Guards was if you married a girl from the county where you were stationed, you had to go to another county. So he married my mother in County Mead, and then he was transferred to County Loud, to Castle Bellingham. So that's where we were born. My older brother was born in Oldcastle. Then Barney, Nancy, and I were born in County Loud, in Castle Bellingham. And when I was five, my father was transferred from Castle Bellingham back to Mead to Dunshotland. That's where I grew up. I would say I'm from County Mead, but actually I was born in County Loud. He was a fabulous man, my father. Oh, my father could play everything. My father played the flute beautifully, and he could scrape, as he said, scrape along on the fiddle. His big pride in his life was that he never left Ireland, and he never saw any reason to leave it. And he didn't know why anybody has had to leave it. Where could you go if there was anybody? I got that from him. My mother was tough, very, very tough, but I think she had kind of a tough life. You know, you can't, you have to think, you have to think, what oh, what's going on? I don't know. The first family in Tipperary were three girls. My father was in the second family. There's seven more children in Tipperary, the second family. There was a double family in Tomb too, like the Coonies. My grandfather's Hoy, Hoy's first wife died. Now, she was my real grandmother. But we were raised thinking the grandmother that was there was our grandmother, and we called her Mammy Hoy. Their names were Hoy, H-O-Y-E. Mammy Hoy was my grandmother's sister. I uh, cousins since that did the ancestry thing. And we found out that our grandmother, our real grandmother, was only 24 when she died. And she had three children, one of which was my mother. Then my grandfather remarried her sister, because her sister came from Clare Morris to take care of the babies. And then they had five more children. We were always told, oh, you know, they had to get a dispensation from Rome, you know. They had to write to the Pope. We thought we were unique.
1: As in every age, good parents do their very best for their children sometimes making difficult choices. The offspring of James and Kathleen Cooney lived, unfortunately, at a time when children were deemed undeserving of any explanation for their parents' decisions. And so it is that, years later, mysteries remain for Peggy.
0: My mother had four children. one on top of the other. My older brother Mick was born in 1929. Mick was an infant. I was there, just born. She took him down to Tipperary and he never came back. I don't know what went on, needless to say, because now my mother has another baby and then she has another baby, so she has three babies. She was just having babies. I don't know, who knows, you know. We didn't know anything about postpartum depression. I don't know. I really don't know. We would go to Tipperary every year when Daddy got his holidays in August. Right at the very foot of on. Beautiful, beautiful place. And that was the highlight of my life, going to Tipperary. There were farmers, they were saving the hay. Nick was there. He was being raised. There were five bachelors, three or four, five bachelors. I don't know how many bachelors there was in the house. And my aunt Ellie, who was the old maid aunt who was taking care of all of them. Well, they raised me. Mick would be missing, he would be gone the morning we were leaving. He was afraid that he would be sent back. But there was a lot of children raised by their grandparents in Ireland. You know that. Even I talked to people at the centre, old people, you know, the people we met along the years in the centre. They came from big families. There was only four of us, for God's sake. A lot of them were parceled out to their grandparents. Of course, they worked on the land, I guess, and they, uh, you know, helped out around the place. It wasn't unusual. But those days, you didn't question anything. Barney, Nancy, and I or three of us are in the National School and on in, in the meantime, my mother decided that I should go down to Chum and go to the convent. I don't know what the thinking was. So I was packed off down to Chum. My grandmother, my grandfather, My grand aunt my maiden-aunt, and my bachelor uncle were living in the house in she was a big house, and I was shoved in among them, and it was worse than England. I hated it. Stuck it out, went through the convent hall, did all the stuff, and then I said, I'm going home. only place I wanted to be was in Dunshaqla with my father.
1: Peggy's one sister, with whom she was very close, did not escape the inscrutable social norms of the times and her mother's intransigence.
0: In 1959, my sister was in England in the Royal Air Force. She went to England and loved it. And she was getting married to an Englishman at the time that my brother was home after being ordained out in Missouri. And there was a big hullabaloo in the village, first priest in 30 years from the village that had been ordained. And oh, it was a great time. I was very close to my sister. My mother and father would have nothing to do with the Englishman, the Protestant, my sister, nothing. These are the times. My brother, the priest, he said he wouldn't go to the wedding. But he had come home with a lot of money. Because during his vacation time in Missouri, he came to New York. He worked at Kennedy Airport at night, sweeping the floors and emptying the garbage cans and studying. So after he was ordained, he came to New York, and they had a big do for him. And in those days, he got a wallet of notes. Remember that? So he came home, and he had plenty of money. So I said, I'm going to Nancy's wedding. So he bought the ticket, and that was her wedding. Finally, my mother came around, but not for many years. Nancy had a baby, Caroline, my niece. Nancy wrote to my mother and she said, David and I and Caroline are coming home for Christmas, whether you like it or not. And she came. And David, who had this cockney accent, everybody loved him. Oh, they loved him in the village. And they'd say to my father, Well, oh, we didn't really know what he was saying, but he's a lovely man. <laughs> and my mother, Loved him. Actually he was very, very good to my parents. And they came and came and came to them. they're all dead and gone now. Well David's still alive.
1: And so to Peggy's younger brother Barney and the trajectory of his life.
0: Very, very athletic. He was a good hurler, good footballer. He was on all the teams and winning medals and all this sort of stuff. He was the youngest child ever that won a scholarship to St. Finian's and got in. When he left Well, he had a choice of jobs. You know, there was the bank and there was the ESB. And he got a job in the county council offices in Navan. So he was in the county council offices in Navan for maybe three, four years. And finally, Barney announced, over the blue, I'm going to be a priest. He went down to Cork and he went to the SMA Fathers and he joined up.
1: SMA, the Society of African Missions. The SMA are but one of any number of organisations where a priest or a nun can serve people in poverty in other parts of the world. There was a time when having a brother or a sister, an uncle or an aunt, away on the missions was as common in Irish families as the crucifix on the sitting room wall.
0: The SMA Fathers had a huge seminary in... County Down. Mm. Drumantine was the name of the seminary, It was in a place called Drumantine, in County Down. By the time he did this, I was in Dundell. So every weekend, I would get on the bus and I'd bring the cakes and the cookies and the sweets and whatever, up to the seminary. I think five years he was supposed to spend there before he would have been ordained. And he was probably there three years, maybe four years. And he decided, no, he wasn't going to Africa. So he came home and he wasn't doing anything. The Bishop of St. Louis in those days was a mead man. So Barney's friend, the priest in the in Newry, got in touch with the Bishop, and between Hoppen and Throtton, his next announcement was, well I'm going to America, I'm going to St. Louis, and I'm just going to be a diocesan priest. So he did, he went to the seminary in St. Louis, and he was ordained in 59, as I say, and they sent him to Springfield, Missouri, as a teacher, he was a teacher and he did that and everything went along fine and i came out here and nancy got married i came here in 60 and i started to go every christmas out to springfield missouri to barney nightmare trips a lot of them snow ozark airlines it was i liked the midwest i really did like it
1: perhaps the signs were there already when barney left the seminary in drummondine but in any event in the course of another long and slow trajectory of soul searching he found his second family.
0: And then many years after that, he met Sharon. He was teaching. He started all kinds of religious things in Springfield. He got to be well known. Then he went to Notre Dame. He got degrees from Notre Dame, at summer school. Meantime, there was a school teacher in the school, and they started a thing, I guess. I know it took two. So everywhere he went, she went. When he went to Notre Dame, she went. When he went to Rochester, she went. He was in DePaul in Chicago doing something else, and she went. And we didn't know anything about her. Eventually, he decided he was going to go back to Ireland. I don't know what the thinking was behind that. And he got a job teaching in a Protestant school in Dubby, in Dalkey. He was very happy teaching in Dalkey. It was a very she-she school, Protestant school. The first Christmas, he told David, Sharon was down in Navan living in one room in a boarding house and she was freezing to death, all she had was one bar of electric fire and David said, we're getting in the car, this was Christmas morning and we're bringing her up here for Christmas dinner and you go in there now and tell them that. So I guess he did go in and announce that there's got to be an extra guest for dinner then Sharon got a job in the school where Barney was. They got a house, they got a beautiful house on the grounds. And they went over to England, to Nancy and David, and arrived on their doorstep and said, we're going to get married. My mother and Sharon got along fine. In fact, to this day, Sharon says, when I used to go down there at Christmas, it was your mother taught me how to make this pastry. My mother was very good cook. During that time that they were in Dorkey, Sharon's mother was dying. So Sharon came back home. And of course, when she got back home, she said, I'm not going back there anymore. So Barney was there for a while, I went home a couple of summers after that, maybe another two summers, and he was still there with his dogs. I was home and I was getting ready to come back. He took me to the airport and he said, I'm going back. He said, I don't want to. He said, you know, if, if I did what I really want to do, I'd stay here. They had two sons. She was 15 years younger than he was. The two years that they went back, the whole family went back, and they did the whole you thing. And I remember the night before they were leaving to come back the second time, Sharon sat at the kitchen table and she cried. And she said, if this had been the Ireland I came to, I would never have left. She loved it. She couldn't believe it was the same country.
1: Barney was the last of Peggy's siblings to pass.
0: And Sharon is a wonderful woman. She really, really is. I have family out there. I wish they weren't so far away, because I'm very alone here. They're lovely. I mean, Sharon is lovely. She's a good, good, good person.
1: And what of her sister Nancy?
0: Oh, she died young. That was a terrible story, too. She got that deep vein thrombosis.
1: And her brother Mick, the one spirited away like the stolen child, to the foot of Shlievna
0: Mick Cooney, he was famous around the place. Oh, he was a character. Bachelor too, never got married. He was wonderful. All the Tipperary people were wonderful. He was a musician. He was all a called Toriérn, and he played the accordion, and he played the tin whistle, and he played the fiddle, and he played the melodion, and he played the banjo. And he was lazy. He got this farm. He had a job once ever in his life for about a year, maybe. He was a postman and he was on the bike. He was going up the mountain and down the mountain and back the mountain. He was fond of beer. He wasn't a drunk by any means, but he liked his drink, but he could go off it. All the coonies were musicians. They had their own Cayley band at one time. And they ran a fish in the village of Grange Moakler, too. None of us got any of the musical talent at all. None of us. His funeral was amazing down in the village at Grange Moakler. Oh! It was like a called kulturi concert, because he never missed a flakiole. And I went to four flakioles with him and slept in the car and slept out under the bushes in the hedges and the ditches. Out of all those children, both the hoys and the coonies, two coonies got married and one, two, three hoys got married. We were a whole family of old maids and bachelors. I didn't get married. There was no reason. I was just having a good time. I was engaged three times. And Mick didn't get married. And who got married? The priest got married. Barney got married. (laughs) But there was always singing and dancing. And Irish Ireland in Tipperary. The royal family and the English and the RIC in the Hoyes. And I always used to say, why didn't I get sent to Tipperary? They could have sent Mick to Tewham.
1: It was Irish Ireland that Peggy took with her to America, and here she met many, like herself, who were aggrieved at the treatment of Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland, that smaller part of Ireland that is under British control. It was all part of a bigger picture, the latest bitter and divisive period in Irish history known as the Troubles.
0: We were always in front of the British Consulate. We never left that place. Tough during the hunger strike. We were down at the United Nations. Before we went to work, we'd stop by again after work. We were there Saturdays and Sundays, always, all of us, either there or at the Consulate. Just peacefully walking up and down, you know, not making any fuss around you. But the city cops, they were our best friends. They loved us.
1: And then there was an organisation called NORAID, formed to fundraise in the United States to benefit the families and dependents of the many nationalists languishing in prisons throughout Britain and Ireland, or lying in the ground.
0: I got involved through people that I met. Most of my friends were from the north of Ireland. We would put the ads together, you know, for the functions, fundraisers, dances, concerts. I was in charge of putting the ads in the... Irish Echo, I was in the Irish Echo because I was working down on 30th Street and 1st Avenue.
1: The Irish Echo, based in New York, is a leading Irish-American newspaper.
0: And I would pass the Echo going to work in the morning or coming home in the evening. And one of our things was everybody was put up. Nobody had to stay in a hotel or spend any money. And anybody that had a little bit of space at all in their apartment put people up. We had pipe bands come over, we had singers come over, we had musicians come over.
1: But following the money can be a perilous journey, and suspicions persisted that the funds raised by NORAID did not always go to the families in need, but were instead passed into the hands of nationalist paramilitaries to pay for a campaign of violence. Peggy's thoughts?
0: I never doubted where the money went. I mean, it was my money too, you know. But that's what the anti-people said. You were either pro or you were con.
1: And were the families of nationalist prisoners badly treated?
0: Oh, of course they were. Oh, terrible, awful, awful. At one stage, we sent enough money back to buy a bus to take the prisoners' dependents, the wives and kids, into McGilligan or into Long Cash. Well, then there was another thing started, which was the Irish-American Defence Fund. And there was a lot of people picked up in this country, and they were in prisons. We raised a lot of money. You know who got all the money? The lawyers. Now, they were all working pro bono. All these various lawyers we had, great lawyers, terrific lawyers, all patriots, Irish-Americans and whatever, and bringing in their Italian friend Pro bono, pro bono. The bills never stopped coming in
1: and so to the present day and her feelings about the recent assault on democracy at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. It's
0: horrible. It's awful. I couldn't believe what I saw there the other day. I mean, look at these Trump people. I mean, that mob the other day, they didn't make any sense.
1: And now it is time for our regular centerpiece, Faith, check-in.
0: I'm staunch Catholic, yes, 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 yes. I listen to Fordham University Mass here every Sunday, sitting right here on the radio. It's a lovely Mass. There was people who were very, very, very disappointed in the Catholic Church, in the clergy in Ireland, in the Free State, that they weren't more involved in caring about the Catholics in the North except for the few good clerics like, you know, Bishop Daly and and those good few clerics that were in the north, So everybody stopped going to Mass and go to confession. I don't think I ever stopped saying my prayers, but I didn't go to Mass over here in Precious Blood for many years. But I did go back. Now I'm glad I did, but I never lost my religion, I don't think.
1: Peggy retired from caring for the children of others at the age of 70 having lost count of how many little babies she'd brought home from hospitals, spending the first weeks of their lives in her arms. Most engagements were short-lived, as was Peggy's preference, but she became an integral part of at least two other families. Maybe we should call them her second and third families.
0: The last job I got from the nursing agency was a doctor at NYU, Valerie, she's having her first child. Her husband's a lawyer, lived right across the street in Kipps Bay, right across the street from NYU Hospital. She had a boy, Joshua, took Joshua out of the hospital. I think I was supposed to stay a month. The month went into two months, and then she talked me into... Just becoming a daily, you know, going in, in the morning and home in the evening. And I did that. And then four years later, Valerie got pregnant again. She had a girl, Jocelyn. And I stayed 13 years. I raised those. Yeah. yeah. They we're still very friendly. Valerie's still working. Bob is still working. Her husband. Valerie spoiled me, actually. I could go home every summer for two months, but I had to get her somebody before I left and there was a parade of Irish students that went into Valerie's and took care of the kids for two months. jobs that I took and kept were easy. I mean, if I didn't get my own way, I was going to be out of there. And Valerie was so dependent on me that there was no way she was not going to let me do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, however I wanted. Her kid's sanity, she said, came from you. She'd always say to her friends, right the only reason I have a career is Peggy.
1: And that virus and the vaccine?
0: Valerie has my name down at NYU. Her husband and I are getting it. Yeah, she got it. Oh, I'll get it. I, I said I wouldn't, but I will. Second year I was here, I thought I loved the beach. i
1: have
0: never been to the beach. I mean, I, I think I, I'd love to be at the beach. I answered an ad in the New York Times for a summer job in the Hamptons. Working for the agency, you only had to work when you felt like it. If you said no, they didn't just forget about you. So I said to Miss MacDonald, my friend Miss MacDonald in the agency, I'm going to take the whole summer off. I want to go to the beach. She said, fine. And I got the job. Maggie was five and Nick was seven. And Maggie's is, is living in Manhattan. She's in her 50s. Nick is in his 50s, living in Massachusetts. And they're the family I still go to the Hamptons with. And they oh.
1: have you out in the summer, is it?
0: No, they rent the house. No, no, a lot has happened. A lot has happened in between with that whole family. No, but uh, they inherited the house, so they rent it every summer. You can't have a house in the Hamptons without renting it because you couldn't afford it. But we go in the spring and the fall. Oh, yes, yes. And the winter. Yeah, I've been out there in the winter. But that's how long I've known those people.
1: Neither reality TV nor a disastrous presidency were Peggy's first encounter. With Donald J. Trump?
0: Well, he was nothing. I mean, he was Trump. Everybody knew Trump anyway in New York. I was once at a cocktail party that Donald Trump was at in the Hamptons. Don Jr. was an infant and they rented a small little cottage. Every weekend there was a cocktail party somewhere. Even the people were different then in the Hamptons, though, not like now. It wasn't snooty at all. The house I was in, it was her turn to give the cocktail party. And the man who had rented the cottage to the Trumps, he was Irish-American, brought Donald and Ivana over to the house to the cocktail party. I think they might have stayed 10 minutes.
1: And what has the New York Irish Centre given to Peggy?
0: The centre was a new, a new phase. It opened up a whole new bunch of friends. And it was like going back 40 years. I was old and getting older and older, and all my old friends apart from two or three, had passed away. There was nobody left. They were all gone. I mean, they all live in my heart and my mind and everything. And I remember all the good times. Thank Paddy Riley for that too, because he called me and said, get your ass over there to Jackson Avenue. I said, where the hell is Jackson Avenue? We all miss it so much. Chrissy calls me. Agnes calls me. Carmel and I talk. Well, it'll always be there, so it will come back. But will it come back soon enough? No, it'll never be soon enough.
1: Storytellers, and Peggy is a storyteller, sometimes feel the stories of their lives are the stories of the lives of others. But with Peggy, her stories all add up to a book of a life well-lived. It is her book as much as it is anyone's. She should copyright it. Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a review for us there, or a rating, we'd be very grateful to learn what you think of Centerpiece NY. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at Centerpiece NY. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y. You can also find our podcast at centerpieceny.com. You can email us at centerpieceny at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with Peggy was conducted in January 2021, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols, including face masks, The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you.